A uh, couple questions, and the first is uh, more geared to those of you that have been part of this program. I'd just like to see by a show of hands, how many of you are already working on your Operation Christmas Child boxes? Okay. Okay. Just a reminder, six months from today is Christmas. And I always get a laugh there, but then I always get that nervous laugh around the 1st of November when you realize you haven't done a thing to start your boxes, and it's going to cost you eight times as much. So you need to start now. We've got a new dollar, a couple new dollar stores in the area, and uh, go give them your business. Oh, yeah, and we have a Walmart, and um, yeah. Enough said. Today we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 3. If you have your Bible or you have a Bible app or whatever other device you might be using today, and that's what we'll be referring to and reading from there shortly, so we'd ask that you prepare for that. Uh, but I have a question for just for thought. I don't need an answer uh, at this point. I just want you to kind of answer that in your own mind. It may not be something that you've thought of lately, or it may not be something you've thought of at all. In what kind of environment, in what kind of environment will God's power flow? In other words, where can you expect to see God really work in power? Yeah, you're right, Bob. I never thought of that question before. I asked the question because I want to speak today on a subject I call the power environment. So you picture this. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It's the hour of prayer in the temple. And Peter and John are heading up to join the throng at the great temple, or as they refer to it, the house of God. And we pick up the reading in Acts chapter 3, in verse 1. One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple court. I'm going to just stop there for a minute and, and, and reset that scene for you. On the way in, as Peter and John approach, they come to a special gate called the Gate Beautiful. That's a gate that's inlaid with gold and precious stones, and it's situated as an entrance in the eastern side of the temple courts. And they came across this man who had been crippled since birth, a man so lame that he couldn't even hobble along with the aid of a crutch, but instead he had to be carried everywhere. And so he had some good friends, who would carry him every single day and lay him at this entrance to the temple to beg from the people that were going in to pray. So just picture that. Every day, every day, every day at prayer time, every day, every day, someone picking him up, getting him to the temple, setting him, setting him down outside every day, every day. You see... He wasn't allowed inside the temple. 
he couldn't go in and join the others in prayer because he was crippled. And because of their great spiritual pride, those inside felt that he was blemished. They felt that he's not fit to even be in the house of God, let alone to pray with them. And so he sits on the steps and he begs. And people would toss him their loose change, mostly I would say to ease their consciences, as they're on their way in to pray. But as Peter and John approached this particular day, he saw them coming, and he asked them for money, for alms. Verse 3 says, Now, uh, when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. And Peter and John had just recently experienced, remember, the events of Pentecost. Back in chapter 2 we read that. And so they were just full of joy. They were full of life and, and power. And this lame man might have felt, well, I'm sure to get a good offering from these guys. I think they just look different. They just seem to have some kind of a, a glow about them. I don't know if he thought that or not. But Peter and John stopped as he spoke to them, and, and, and not like everyone else who tried to get past him without looking. And verse 4 says, Peter, when he saw him, said to him, look at us. I'm suggesting here that the man's head is bowed down. I'm suggesting that this man never looked into the eyes of those who came by. He didn't want to offend anybody. He didn't want to embarrass anybody. So he just kept his head down low and asked for money. But here's Peter saying, look at us. Um, I've heard some of you parents use those words. I'm talking to you, look at me. When you're saying that, what you're saying is, I, I, I want your undivided attention. I'm speaking and about to do something, and it's important, and you need to hear it. So Peter says, did you ever notice this before? Peter says, look at us. So verse 5 kind of opens this up. And verse 5 says, so the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. And so Peter answers in verse 6 and he says, Silver or gold I don't have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And then we come down to those great 7th and 8th verses. In verse 7 it says, Then what happened? Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. And in verse 8 we read, he jumped to his feet, and he began to walk, and then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. Uh, can I just stop there? If you have never heard that or read that story before, does that just kind of strike you? Can you listen or hear or read that story and not respond somehow? I think not. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that really amazing? 
Isn't that like over the top amazing? Not too much amazes us anymore, I got to tell you. It's, hmm. Perhaps this man's head was bowed down because he didn't want to really look at these men or he didn't want them to look at him. And so Peter says, now look at us. And we don't have any silver or gold to give you. But what I have, I'm going to give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And then he took him by the right hand and he lifted him up. And in that moment of time, strength came into the man's feet and his ankle bones for the very first time in his life. First time ever. And he leaped up or leapt up and he began to dance around before all of the hundreds of Jews that were coming in for prayer. Probably some of them didn't even notice. Probably some of them couldn't have cared less. Oh no, they're coming in to pray. He at this point was doing nothing but praising God. What a miracle. Do you believe in miracles? Do you believe miracles are only for Acts 3? No. Have we ever seen miracles in these days? Have you ever seen a miracle? Okay. There are at least three recorded miracles here. How many know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? The greatest miracle of all time. Then there are many other miracles that come to us. Problem is, you will never see a miracle if you don't believe in miracles. It doesn't happen the other way around. Don't you love to hear stories like this? Don't you love that Acts chapter 3 story of the power of God? Don't you long, church, to see God's power move like that in our midst? Don't you long, church, to see God's power move like that in faith community? So here's the question. In what kind of environment, then, will God's power flow? How and where can we expect to see that? See, I don't think we need great, big, complex ideas. I believe God usually deals with us very simply. The main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. I I can see some very basic principles in this story, and I'm going to admit for you this morning some principles I had overlooked or maybe just never seen, never popped out. The Holy Spirit had never revealed it to me. But I see some things in this story that will help us to recognize, if we desire to see God's power, recognize the power environment. So let's look at it, okay? First, I'm going to submit that God's power flows where God is present. Sounds simple, doesn't it? It's almost obvious. God's power flows where God is. Now, let's look at this lame man's predicament and not get too far away from those temple steps. Look with me for a moment. I'm going to repeat it. He has been set down in this particular spot every day of his life. And over in chapter 4, verse 22, it tells us that is more than 40 years. 
The temple was supposedly the very house of God. It was the home of God's presence. And yet here he was, all his life, more than 40 years, camped at its gates, and he's still a helpless human. In all of their religious fervor, there was nothing that these people could offer him. And I don't think they ever tried anyway from what we see. The best they could do was a few copper coins. As I said, to ease their conscience as they passed by him, just sort of as a matter of pity more than anything. And yet this, in their minds, was the home of God. I mean, the God who created the universe by the word of his mouth. Is there no hope? Is there nothing that can be done? Is there nobody that can help? My friends, he was not even there. When Jesus hung on the cross and he uttered those last triumphant words, it is finished, the Bible records that the curtain in the temple for which centuries had barred man from the presence of God was torn in two right down the middle from the top to the bottom and torn by the very hands of God. What did that signify? We usually hear it preached or taught that it signified that because of the sacrifice of Jesus, man could now enter the Holy of Holies. And that's a real spiritual type message, and it's probably fun to preach that message. And it's correct, by the way, but it's not all of it. That's only half of the story. The curtain was torn away, signifying that now God's presence is no longer veiled in seclusion for only a choice few, but now he has come forth and he lives in his new dwelling place. And the one he has always longed for, that's the dwelling place where he lives now. Since time immemorial, this has been his plan, his dream, if you want, his goal, and he dwells in the lives of those that love him. You, my friend, we, my friends, are the vessels of Almighty God. Turn to someone and say, we're the vessels of God. Oh, boy, but when that curtain was torn in two, the religious folk of the day got real nervous. Hey, hey, someone was interfering with their safe little religious lifestyle zone. So what did they do? As fast as they could, they tacked that curtain back up and just whistled past the graveyard. But friends... When that curtain was torn away, God was making his final declaration about where he intended to reside. And in truth, the glory of God had been absent from that place for centuries. For those who had eyes to see, Ichabod had been written over its doorpost, meaning the glory has departed. But I thank God that when the saving and healing and restoring presence of God was no longer in this temple, yet he was in the lives of these two disciples of Jesus, namely Peter and John. The lame man had been set down at the gates of the temple, like I said, all of his life. But here now, he experiences the real power of God's presence, not 
flowing out. And this is a great, great lesson for the church in the 21st century. Not flowing out the doors of the temple, but rather walking up those stairs. The church, I'm going to go back to that scene and just call it the church. I'm going to call it body ministry in action. Will not and does not take place only inside these walls, but mostly outside of the walls. Church, did you hear me? That's where body ministry takes place. Oh yes, we still get together. Oh yes, we still like our fellowship inside here. But if that's all we have, we're no better than those who are going to pray, ignoring the man, ignoring the needs, ignoring the helpless and the helpless, and ignoring the fact that God hadn't shown up in a whole long time. You go back to that great fourth verse, and Peter looks straight at the man. He, some uh, uh, translations say he fixed his eyes on the man. No one else would have anything to do with this guy. And Peter's fixing his eyes on him. You see, the Jews believe that a man like that, and we see this a little bit later on, he must be a sinner. Because if he's in that kind of condition, he must have sinned. Or perhaps he didn't. Maybe it was his parents. And because of that, he was afflicted with an infirmity. And they just thought, well, that's the punishment of God. But as Peter saw him, perhaps he heard the words of Jesus ringing in his ears, and he said, neither this man nor his parents sin, but listen, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. And so Peter reaches out and heals the man. Tell me, though, is the hand that reaches out, is that Peter's hand, or is that God's hand? And the answer is yes. It is Peter's hand. Why? Because we are his hands and feet. But it's also God's hand. Because without the power of God upon us, we are powerless. God says in Colossians, uh, the Bible says in Colossians 1.27, Paul says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is, let's read it, Christ in you. What? The hope of glory. So the lame man was healed because God's power flows wherever he is. And if he would see the power, and if you and I would see the power in our day, we must secure the presence of Jesus. I'll give you another great example over in John's Gospel, chapter 11, Mary and Martha were very, very aware of this. When their brother, Lazarus, died, they called for Jesus. They knew that if he was present, God's power would flow. But Jesus arrived, yes, he did, a little late. And Lazarus had already died. Do you remember what Martha said to Jesus? She said, if only you had been here, because she knew that where Jesus is, there's power. 
She knew if there's going to be the power of God, there has to be the presence of God. If only you had been here, her problem was that she saw Jesus as the God of yesterday. If only you had been here, and Jesus said, oh, 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 Martha, Lazarus is going to live again. And she said, oh, I know he's going to live again in the resurrection. So not only was Martha's God the God of yesterday, but Martha's God was also the God of a dim, distant future. (laughs) But Jesus said to her in verse 25 of John 11, I am, the great I am, is the resurrection and the life. He that believes on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. So friends, let me just bring you up to date here. Jesus is the God of today. That's why the Bible says, and you'll find this in your Bible in Hebrews 13.8, that He's the same yesterday and today and forever. Hallelujah! If we can but secure His presence, God's power will flow wherever He's present. Church, if we ever lose sight of that, padlock the place because you're just going through a futile exercise that'll do no good for anybody. So how do we see and expect this power environment? Well, God's power will flow also where there is expectancy. If you go back to Acts 3 where we started and you look again at those verses 4 and 5, very dramatic to me, and maybe I'm over-dramatizing it, but but the word expectancy is there. He said he, he looked up at the man with expectancy or expecting to get something. <laughs> he wasn't anywhere near expecting what he got. And, and he never mentioned money again, you notice. He, expectancy is waiting for something in suspense. There was something about these two men that he would bother to talk to, that they would bother to talk to him, and that made him wait in suspense, the Bible says, expecting something. What was he expecting? Something good. He may have only been thinking about silver and gold. But I want to say this for the layman. At least he was expecting something. How many know that it's a biblical truth that God does exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ever ask or think. How many of you know that? Okay. Well, for those of you that don't, it's true. Come on board. Hang with us for a while. The problem is that so often we come to God, come on, let's be honest here, not really expecting much. Or sometimes we come to God not expecting anything, because we're pretty powerful, let's face it. And we're pretty self-made people, and we're, we're, we're pretty self-sufficient. And we can look after self, and we can get what we want, and do what we want, and go where we want, live like we want. So we don't come to God expecting a whole lot. We come to church. Kind of ready. Oh, yeah, it's Sunday. Okay, let's go. We're not really expecting anything's going to happen. Let me tell you something, church. 
If we get to the stage that born-again believers come to church not expecting anything to happen, then we are of all men most miserable. When you feel that way, what a surprise! Nothing does happen. Yet so many people throughout the world go to church every single Sunday. They wouldn't miss if their life depended on it, but they feel that same way. They go. But they're not expecting anything to happen. Friends, whether it be at home in your private devotional or whatever ministry you're involved in and you are involved in that and thinking about that and preparing for that or when you come to the place of corporate worship, listen, we must come to God with expectancy. Hebrews 11.6 says, They that come to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Do you come here today expecting God to do something new, to do something exciting, to do something fresh in your life, to do something to show his power. If you did come in here this that way today, then you will not leave here the same way that you came in. This lame man, look at it, look at it. He expected something. (laughs) How, How could you sit there every day for 40 years and then all of a sudden, just because somebody paid attention to you, You have expectancy. You'd have thought that had died and been buried and gone long ago in that man's mind and life. And all of a sudden it says, he expected something. Can I suggest to you that he got far more than he ever expected? See, because God's power flows where there's expectancy. And church, we need to develop an attitude of expectancy. I love the buzz that goes on here before we get the service started on Sundays. It thrills me because I feel like people are glad to fellowship. They're glad to be together. They've come with open minds and hearts. They want to get something that they don't have, and they've brought something to get it in, and they want to go out a different person than than when they walked in. I believe there are three basic premises that we need to get a hold of in relation to that expectancy. First, God wants us to come to him with expectancy. If you were to turn to James chapter 1, I'm not going to go there right now, but I'm just going to reference it, especially the first five, six, seven, let's say eight verses. The whole context there in James 1 is specifically that of a person coming to God for wisdom. Some of you may be familiar with that passage, and if you are or aren't, I would suggest you read it sometime soon. But the truth of of that text is the same wherever you apply it. Because whenever you come to God, this is a principle. God wants us to come to him with expect. Don't go asking for wisdom if you don't expect to get it. Don't go asking for answers if you don't expect to get them. God's not impressed just because you're a professional super prayer. When you pray, you want to... You want to come expecting. You want to come, the Bible says, in faith, believing. Had a missionary friend of many years uh, who said in, in the culture that, that he was living in, in the Far East, he said when, when people uh, converted and came to Christ, he said they would pray over sick people and they would, they would envision the person being whole while they prayed. Man, that's praying with expectancy. Well, we pray prayers like, well, Lord, yeah, 
you know, a brother here is sick, and if you could, and, and, and if you'd like to, and if you can, and oh, I know you're busy, but if you're not too busy, we need to do what we do, my friend, with expectancy. In 1 Timothy 2, 8, Paul says, I desire that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. God wants us to come to him with believing hearts. He wants us to come to him with faith-filled hearts. He wants, to come, he wants us to come to him with expectant hearts, and he wants to, us to come to him expecting something to happen. This man expected to get something. God wants us to come to him with expectancy. The second little principle that I want to share with you or premise, I'll call it, is we have every reason to come to him with expectancy because God always answers his people. I didn't expect any kind of resounding amen to that. So let's read that. Read that B together. God always answers his people. How many of you believe that? I have every reason to believe. I'm firmly convinced. There's never been a prayer in my life that God has not heard and answers. He answers every time the righteous call on Him. I haven't always claimed that righteous title either. But that brings me very quickly to my third premise, and that is this. God doesn't always answer the way we're anticipating. Has anybody ever found that, or am I the only one? Mm. Why? Because His plan is in our plan, and His ways are far above our ways, and His wisdom outweighs ours by, by quadrillion times, and so there's no, there's no comparison. God always answers my prayers, but sometimes His answer is... No. Or sometimes he answers with a different provision than I requested. I gave him all the conditions and I listed everything for him and I read the fine print to him and he still came back and said, I want to do a different provision here. And that is where you will recognize you will start your Christian life strong, stronger and you will start growing in your faith when you get to that point where you recognize that you must adhere and you must give over to the Lordship of Christ. He's the Lord of all. He's the King of all kings. He's the creator and sustainer of this universe, including all life in it. That's you, that's me, that's everything and everyone else. So we come into corporate worship and we sing, by the way, at Faith Community, we sing some fabulous choruses. Messages, no, no, really. Messages in those, in those songs, many of them, I would say, the majority of them plucked right from Scripture. Um, great are you, Lord. What, what, what a song. 
I like that one, alive in you. Glory to God forever. I could go on and on and on. But here's where the rubber meets the road. Are we singing those as individuals and as a church? On the one hand, and on the other hand, are we accepting what God decides is best for our lives? Because when we sing, Great are you, Lord, we are ascribing unto him his rightful lordship. So those just words that go along with some, some music, we just put the lyrics up there and... Or are we really saying, this is what I believe? I am understanding now that whole concept of the Lordship of Christ. Bill Hybels said it this way. He said, when it's not His will, God says no. When it's not His time, God says slow. But when it's His will and the time is right, God says go. I love this. The Bible calls us to have an expectancy in God. Are you listening? That allows Him to be God. That's the kind of expectancy that's needed. See, God will always do what is best for your eternal well-being. You may not see it today. You may not see it in 10 years' time. You say, well, I know down the road somewhere, I'll look back on this. Well, don't be so futuristic and don't be so fatalistic. Who knows whether you'll figure that out or not. But I'm telling you that He will always do best for you in terms of eternity. And He'll do what is most honoring to Him. That's why we must trust Him. The Bible says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He knows the end from the beginning. And I don't, and you don't. How many times we pray thinking we know, kind of, we can package this thing, see, we can gift wrap it, and we can just hand it over and say, here, I've done all the work, you can just bless it. He knows the end from the beginning. Think of that. Someday you have a few minutes, just sit and, 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 and ponder and, and meditate on those words. My God knows the beginning and the ending of all things. He knows where I am. He knows what I'm doing. He knows what kind of situation I'm in. He knows how I got here. He's not condemning me. I'm still here. I'm still breathing His air. There must be a purpose. And so He knows the end from the beginning. And then bring yourself to this point. But I don't. So I have to trust Him. And let me say this. Trusting God is a learned activity. You weren't born with that. I want to live with a... I guess I'll just tell you where I am. I want to live... And when I say I want to live, I know I'm talking about borrowed time here because I've gone by the 310. But... I want to live with a full expectancy of seeing the hand of God in my life every single day. So this kind of expectancy that I'm talking about this morning, this power environment, 
ought to characterize every area of a believer's life. It ought to characterize every area of my life. It ought to characterize every area of your life. It ought to characterize every uh, area of our lives as, as Christian believers enjoying the Lord together. For instance, if that kind of expectancy is, 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 uh, is welling up and is, and is getting stronger in you, you can expect God to direct your life. You can. You can expect God to save you out of dire circumstances. You can expect God to provide for you. And you can expect God to heal and restore whatever your situation is. William Carey, the father of modern missions, said, and I quote, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. He understood this principle. If you read his story, he understood this principle perfectly well. Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Another great missionary of yesteryear, J. Hudson Taylor, who opened the country of China, had such a profound influence on that uh, nation and upon their culture and upon the growth of Christianity, which, by the way, is still very much alive in that country. Probably more Christians in that country than any country in the world. Many of them are underground. Many of them are meeting in forests and and wooded areas, and they don't have a book like this they call the Bible, but each one of them might have a page or two, and if you've got a hundred of them, they might have a hundred pages of Scripture, and that's what they live off, but they live every word of it. We have the whole book, and it gathers dusk on our, on our coffee table. Hello. J. Hudson Taylor said this, and I quote, Many Christians estimate difficulties in the light of their own resources. How many times have I done that? And thus they attempt little, and they often fail in the little they attempt. Here's what he said. But all God's giants have been weak men who did... Just think of the people in the Bible that you're thinking of right now, especially some of the Old Testament people. All God's giants have been weak men, Hudson Taylor said, who did great things for God because they reckoned on His... Listen to this power and presence with them. End of quote. Wow. That's from the lips of J. Hudson Taylor. Wow. 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 Oh, Dr. M. R. DeHaan used to say, practice the presence of Christ. Bloom where you're planted. Perhaps you've never given it any thought before, but let me ask you. Have you ever thought of this? Or has anybody ever posed the question to you? How do you think God feels when we come before Him without a sense of expectancy? Come on, let's be honest. How do you think God feels when we come before Him without a sense of expectancy? I mean, if He is the great God who made all of heaven and earth, 
Don't you think it's rather insulting to him when we come not expecting anything to happen? Listen, he created the entire universe by a word out of his mouth. Hmm. So we must come with expectant hearts and come to God that way. And as individuals, and as a body, when we fully expect to see Him move, we'll see His power. We'll see His power. How many of you viewed those videos this week of the baptisms from last week? I had to see those a couple times again. I missed a lot of it. I wasn't out here with you for some reason or other. But, uh, wow. That just, I mean, that just stirred my heart. I just said the power of God was all over that wonderful service. If you haven't seen it, go to the church website or Facebook page and uh, check on those latest, those latest videos and stories. Well, we're talking about the power environment. Well, God's power, where else will it flow? It will flow where right authority is recognized. Very important principle. Because a very striking feature of this account in Acts 3, you don't want to get too far afield, something that really struck me, now don't, don't judge me for saying this, There's no record anywhere of Peter and John praying at all for this man. And I know anybody that knows me is not going to ask if I all of a sudden don't believe in prayer, because you know different. Here's what they did. They simply took hold of the authority available in the name of Jesus, and the man was healed. I feel pretty confident that they were prayed up before they headed to the temple. They didn't have to get to church to get in touch with God. I'm sure they spent much time, matter of fact, this all happened outside. They hadn't even done the announcements in there yet. I mean, you can't have church without announcements. I'm sure they spent a lot of time seeking the Lord. I know they did. But when this man presented them with his need, they didn't feel they had to pray. They brought him his healing in the precious and powerful name of the Lord Jesus. Wow. Wow. See, see this is what we've got to realize. And I, and I don't think we've preached this enough in a, a, a lot of the... Uh, a lot of the evangelical churches or independent churches or free churches or whatever you want to call the church. I don't think we've done enough preaching and teaching on this element of the power environment. We must realize that there is great authority in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Authority to restore, authority to release Authority to deliver. Authority to advance His kingdom here on earth. You say, why do we need that authority? Because that's exactly what He commanded us to do if you go to Matthew 28. In verse 18, Jesus says, Now all authority has been given to Me. In case anybody doubted it, 
in heaven and on earth. So what do we conclude? We conclude that all authority belongs to Jesus. That's wonderful enough, isn't it? But now listen further, because if you read on to the end of that chapter, and I'm specifically citing here verses 19 and 20 of Matthew 28, and if you're a note-taker, I advise you to get those down. Here's what he said, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. In fact, we read of several occasions in the Gospels and in the Epistles when Jesus invested his authority and his followers in order to complete tasks that he sent them to accomplish. In Luke chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, he sent out 12 of his closest friends, his, 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 his close men in that circle. In Luke chapter 10, verse 1, he sent out 70 disciples. In Mark chapter 16, the last four verses, he gave his authority to all them that believe. If you believe this morning, are, are you a believer? Are you a believer? Are you daily trusting in the Son of God as your Savior, your Lord, and your Master? Then who shall these signs follow? These signs that he talked about in, in Matthew, in Luke, and in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they will follow you. Because you will be and are endued with power from on high. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Hear this clearly, understand it well. All ultimate authority is in the universe belongs to Jesus Christ, our King. He doesn't give his authority away. He doesn't become less the authority and we more. But he invests the authority in us, his church, in order to accomplish his purposes. And that's the qualification we must understand. And that's the qualification, dear friends of God, that we we need to embrace. On every occasion that we read of Jesus divesting his authority in others, every scripture which promises us his authority, it's always to this end that his purposes might be accomplished. That's exciting. God's power flows then where right authority is rightly recognized. Oh man, that more Christians would get a hold of this truth. That Jesus' authority is available to his church. Why? To complete the mission that he sent us on. And that brings me to my fourth power environment principle. And I'm taking all these right here from Acts chapter 3, the first 10 verses. So lastly, let me say, God's power flows where he will receive the glory. Verses 9 and 10 read like this. So the, the layman has been healed. He's walking. He's jumping. He's dancing. He's making a fool of himself. Would to God some of you would make a fool of yourself once in a while? That wasn't a joke. And the people saw him. 
They didn't know what to do. They didn't know what to say. They didn't know how to explain. And verse 9 says, When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. They may not have understood it, but they couldn't deny it. i got to tell you in Acts chapter 3, God moved in power. And he healed this lame man. Why? In order that his great name might be honored. Peter and John could rightly claim the authority of the name of Jesus. Because this moment was going to bring glory to God. Because God's power flows where he receives the glory. I'd like to bring the worship team back to the stage at this time. And I want to conclude by saying that so far you've gotten it all right. God's power flows where he receives the glory. In years past, I have been greatly challenged, and more so lately because I've gone back to this after some years of it lying dormant, reading accounts of the great and wonderful revival in Wales, the Welsh revivals, particularly the years of 1858 to 60, and that's often called the Welsh 59 revival. One of the men whom God so signally blessed and used in that revival was the Reverend David Morgan. And if you're interested in this history, you're interested in the movement of revivals and you're interested in the, one of the greatest revivals of all time, the Welsh revival, then you, you, you need to study a little bit or just read up on this. Go to Google and just uh, uh, type in Reverend David Morgan, M-O-R-G-A-N. Wow, there are a lot of incredible things. I mean, there are so many things about this man's life. But I remember one account in principle that kind of draws together these principles and thoughts that I've tried to share with you this morning. It occurred in a place called Devil's Bridge in North Where else would you want to have a revival, right? In northern Wales. It was an evening service on New Year's Day in the year 1860. Why is 1860 a very important date for we Americans, for us Americans? Huh? Civil War, and who was the president? Thank you. No, it wasn't Ronald Reagan. And, and an old minister who was there with David Morgan wrote these words, and I must read them verbatim. The evening service was terrible, meaning meaning phenomenal. They didn't have the big words that we have now. So near was that revivalist to his God that his face shone like that of an angel. Now, my face is shining this morning because I had an outdoor wedding at 3 o'clock yesterday afternoon. (laughs) Shining for different reasons. His face shone that evening like that of an angel, so that none could even gaze steadfastly at him. 
Many of his hearers swooned. So on the way home, I dared not break the silence for many miles. Towards midnight, I ventured to say, didn't we have blessed meetings today and tonight especially, Mr. Morgan? Yes, he replied. And then after a pause, he added, the Lord would give us great things if if only he could trust us. What, 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 what do you mean, I asked. And David Morgan replied, if God could trust us not to steal the glory for ourselves. Then the midnight air rang with the sound of Morgan's cry at the top of his voice. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name we give glory. Church, hear me now. We must jealously jealously guard to ensure that everything we do is genuinely for the glory of God alone. And there we have it. In what environment? This is how I started with the question, will God's power flow? Acts chapter 3 very clearly tells us. Four guiding principles. The power will flow where He is. The power will flow where there is expectancy. The power will flow where right authority is recognized. And the power will flow where He alone will receive the glory. And that's it. And that's it. Mark it well. That is the power environment. Thank you for listening. God bless you. I love you folks. Let's practice what we preach.